This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode number 10. Today my guest is Zachary Tisdale, and we'll be talking about the problems with the data analysis that happened throughout the COVID pandemic and lockdowns. Zachary Tisdale, how are you doing, sir? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Uh, now, the reason I wanted to have you on is because I thought our listeners would appreciate your take on the data analysis regarding COVID and how that impacted government policy over the last couple of years. Can you give us a kind of high-level description of what you do and why data analytics are important in times like what we've just gone through here. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm a business analytics and segmentation lead at a mutual insurance company. We work in uh, property and casualties. That's home and auto insurance. Um, I've got a bachelor of mathematics from the University of Waterloo. I'm a fellow chartered insurance professional, uh, an associate of insurance data analytics, and I'm the upcoming chair on the Cortha Durham Council of the Insurance Institute of Canada. So a lot of what I do is look at insurance data and kind of go through the the data to find like stories and insights, really take a look at you know, the record of information coming from both the policies that we sell as well as the claims that occur and take a look and see you know, other patterns in the data. Um, trying to find explanations for results, like why are certain areas profitable versus unprofitable, and try to put that together to inform strategic business decision making. Like, you know, should we retreat from a certain area because it's not been profitable, and should we try to move into new areas or new products based off of market research, taking a look at our own internal performance? analytics and taking a look at the external environment and trying to use the information and data to make like informed decisions. And there's always a got to strike a balance between that like sometimes the data might say one thing and you know the the correct decision might actually to be to do something else. There's a bit of that gut instinct when it comes to um, to business. But we tried to take a look at the data to again, make informed decisions as much as we can. Um, just the, the more informed you are, the better decisions you can make, the more well-rounded your decisions would be. So I mean, that's a lot of what I do is take a look at our data. I work on, say, transforming raw data sets into something that's much more usable and consumable and understandable for people that aren't specialists in data and try to make sense of that information. Take a look and say, okay, well, what does the data say about the past? Because it's almost like a record of history. But then how can we use it to try to make projections forward into the future to say, you know, where are we going? What are the different avenues we can take? What are some different scenarios and high and low range forecasts? Uh, And then we try to set up those scenarios and and monitor our actual results against those scenarios to make sure that, you know, we're we're our assumptions of the future or the assumptions of these models and projections into the the future accurate. You know, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? And how can we make better and more informed decisions going forward? So as you can see, there's a lot of um, how that is applicable to what we just went through with the, the pandemic and whatnot and how 
you know, at the, at the start of the pandemic, way back in, say, early 2020, we didn't have a whole lot of information. Like, we could look back on previous pandemics and see what happened, uh, but we didn't have a whole lot of good stats for, you know, the, the current pandemic with uh, COVID-19. And that's where my personal thoughts were like, all right, you know, that initial set of lockdowns back in early 2020 were you know, accept or acceptable, tolerable, like it was a real emergency, you know, the, this deadly virus was spreading. We didn't have a whole lot of information. Uh, but pretty soon after that initial lockdown, um, I think even as early as May 2020, we had some pretty good information and stats about who was more susceptible to the virus, you know, who were more likely to be at risk, more likely to, say, um, perish as a result of the implications of the, the virus. And, and what was the impacts of the lockdowns as well in terms of, say, trying to reduce the spread or transmission of that virus? But then everything since then has kind of gone awry. And I think um, data has been used and abused a lot over the last two years for political purposes, um, trying to pump up certain narratives, trying to justify certain political actions and decisions. And e either they were not based on either correct data or is based on misinterpretation, either deliberate or maybe accidental misinterpretation of the stats and data. And now that we've gone through it over you know, two years later, we've got some good quality data from many different jurisdictions all around the world and how they approach the virus and um, the different tactics that they, they used and the, the data that we've collected from that to show that we have a much more informed um way of handling the, the, the virus or say future pandemics if they were to occur. And there's been numerous instances where we've seen the data was used and abused. And a lot of the measures that were taken were not backed up by the data and were, have been proven to have not been as effective as they were originally communicated uh, to help with the spread of the, the virus. Yeah. Yeah. So I find that governments always have pressure on them to be doing something most voters see action. They want to see action from governments. Uh, even policies that cause damage tend to gain support because at least politicians are doing something. Uh, I guess I'm thinking of mask mandates in particular, which was something that was highly visible. It was politically divisive, uh, which they also like. But according to the data, wasn't all that effective. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think we have to kind of go back in time a little bit and think back to the early days of the pandemic where masks were not or like even originally recommended initially on. I recall there were some discussions or speeches by, you know, Dr. Fauci down in the States where he said like, you know, the masks don't really help. They, you know, there, there's limited effectiveness. A lot of it depends on the type of mask that you're wearing as well. And I recall even uh, there were some initial speeches, I, think, I forget if it was by the, um, I think it was a lady that was involved in, like, uh, she was a disease specialist, and basically said the, the real impact of masks is not filtering out of, say, the virus through the cloth or whatnot. The real impact of masks was to cause alarm and fear in other people so that seeing someone masked up is alarming, that you know, they might be infected with something and you would want to stay away 
from them and maintain your distance from them. And that's what actually helped, say, reduce maybe some of the, the spread of the virus is just the mask almost as a symbol or a signal to stay away, keep your distance. But it didn't actually filter or protect the virus from you know entering your body or expelling it <laughs> i even recall seeing one video where it was a, a doctor was trying to show and prove how masks were effective by wearing it outside when it was really cold where you could see his breath and he showed when he put on a mask he's like oh look it stops the um you know your breath from spreading but you could still see the <laughs> you know the um the condensation in the air go all up and around him anyway and so the the masks in and of themselves, you know, didn't really prevent COVID from, you know, say entering people's bodies or being being spread out in the air. It was really more of a symbol uh, to people to to stay away and keep their distance. Now, like, there has been a lot of say some studies, you know, that have been done since then, uh, since the start of COVID. Uh, I recall. That down in it was Bangladesh um, that the Washington Post had reported on, and I point to that as, as a clear example of misinterpreting data. Where they they looked at that there's a large scale study, and the Washington Post tried to spin it to say, well, this study proves that masks are effective. But if you really read through the data, they show that well, no, it, this actually proves that masks were not effective or had a limited limited impact on you know spreading the. Um, spreading the disease, I think it was only something like 10% effective for medical-grade masks, which most people throughout the pandemic were not even wearing medical-grade masks, much less the more effective um, you know, N95 masks that really filter out particles. Uh, but a lot of people were wearing cheap cloth masks, um, bandanas, and things like that, which, you know, the, the holes in between the threads in those masks, you know, they're, they're not, they even say on the box of a lot of those masks that they do not prevent the spread or transmission of the virus, but people were wearing them anyway, so a lot of it was just pure um, COVID theater, as, uh, as they say. And so that's where I think we need to take a look at things and say, like, you know, some of the studies that we've got and people always kept saying, talk about, you know, we need to follow the science. But uh, I believe we need to depoliticize science and, and uh, we need to get away from or admonish politicians that say, you know, follow the science because science is not some sort of static thing. It's always changing as we learn more and we enhance our understanding. And they say, like, you know, you can't question science. Don't question it. Just follow and obey. And that's not real science. That's just doctrine. That, that, that's just dictating to someone, you need to do this because we say so. <laughs> and that's uh, that's not real science. So um, anyway, there's, like, for anyone that's curious out there, there's a um, – uh, this guy's name. His name's David Amber. People might be familiar with him already. He's a civil liberties lawyer. I think he's representing uh, Randy Hillier, who's an MPP in Ontario who was kicked out of the Doug Ford PC caucus, and he was involved a bit in the Freedom Convoy. Got into a bit of trouble there from some of his actions, which probably crossed over the line. But anyway, that lawyer, David Amber, he's posted a lot of really good um, evidence and studies on his Twitter that shows a lot of the mask mandates and masks were just not really effective in you know preventing the spread of covid showing comparisons between jurisdictions that did have masking and those that did not have masking and how that there was very little difference at all in terms of the rate of spread and just helped to kind of reinforce the the idea that's known that uh, the coronaviruses are really they're seasonal viruses 
And really what spreads the virus is people being indoors, close quarters, and having prolonged contact with someone um, that might be infected with the, the virus. So anyway, so that and that's what I found was that, you know, governments and stuff, when they because they came out so strongly in favor of masking when the evidence didn't really support that i've noticed there's been um campaigns of censorship to try to suppress a lot of that information which uh, i think is you know disrespectful to the population at large that people should have as much information as possible that's you know been verified and whatnot but real evidence that even if it runs counter to political man you know mandates and or public health mandates that people should have you know the the truth provided to them so that they can make informed decisions about their own health and the, the level of risk that they want to take on and in, in their engagement with society at large i like i'm not opposed to somebody wearing a mask it's a free country where wear all the masks you want wear a halloween mask i don't care uh but I am opposed to mandates, uh, and the same way I'm not opposed to the vaccine, I am opposed to vaccine mandates. What what can you tell us about some of the data that was suppressed to help put these vaccine mandates in place? Well, and I think that's the thing that um that's what's been misconstrued a lot is people say ah oh, you're you're anti-maskers or anti-vaccineers, and I'm not one of those people either. You know I'm believe in vaccines we we know that vaccines work although i think we should stop calling what's been spread around lately as a vaccine that the covid vaccines aren't really vaccines in the sense that polio vaccines where people get them they are prevented from you know catching say that disease or spreading it to someone else we've seen that the what we've got out there with pfizer and moderna and whatnot are not true vaccines and that's what i was opposed to was the mandates as you say forcing someone to either take an injection into their own bodies and, you know, lose their jobs over that. But in terms of the vaccines and the, the data behind it, yeah, I think we saw that almost at the start uh, of the vaccine rollouts, um, at least here in Ontario, one of the, there's different brands of vaccines that people were fighting over, which is one of the strangest things. But I think it was because initially on, there was one uh, from AstraZeneca, which some of the initial um, results from that showed that people were getting blood clots, from these uh the vaccines and so they they had to open it up right away when people were like yeah i don't want that astrazeneca one but a lot of people wanted the vaccine so they had they you know they opened it up quite a bit it which was which is crazy to me later on when they started getting into mandating the vaccine shots so i was like well how can you force someone to take an injection that we know has side effects such as blood clots and i thought that was just completely uh, disrespectful for concepts of bodily autonomy but even in terms of other data that's come out especially more recently um i believe pfizer had a whole bunch of uh, side effects that they tried to bury uh for up to i think it was 75 years they're trying to bury the side effects of the pfizer uh, vaccines and they were sued um and they had to there was a court order that basically forced them to release all the side effects. I think that goes back a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. And Pfizer had to release a, the first initial data dump was like nine pages of different side effects and things that came out of their trials, which I think they initially had trialed it around like 20,000 people and like no pregnant women were included in that trial, if I recall correctly. And they tried to, you know, bury some of the side effects just to try to, again, justify the the emergency order in which the COVID vaccines were rolled out under. 
that's something I think people weird have this weird collective amnesia and they forget specific things about what happened in the order of events over the last two years where, you know, the, the vaccines that rolled out had to be approved under an emergency set of orders where under the normal circumstances we never would have approved um, shots or injections with, with this speed, but it was only through under those emergency orders that they were able to be rolled out. And so that's what they try to do is bury and suppress that information. So people didn't couldn't really muster say some sort of intellectual argument or defense against getting the vaccines um but i think we we kind of know better now um and so some of those like the side effects there have been people that have died from blood clots from the the covid vaccines again there was um they're hearing more and more about people either getting shingles or uh, there was another side effect. Um, I forget the name of it, like mitochondrias or something like that. But so there's a lot of side effects from these vaccines. And, and that's why, again, I took a strong opposition to the vaccine mandates and forcing people to take an injection that we know ha- has side effects. And I, I just believe in informed consent you know when people normally go for medical procedures it's like optional medical procedures such as say laser eye surgery which i had done a couple years ago before you get the surgery they hand you this paper and it says you know you've got a one in two hundred thousand chance of you know going blind or having some sort of side effect and they provide you that information up front so that you're able to make an informed decision before you go ahead uh, with the procedure but i don't really recall when i went to go get the vaccines because I've had the COVID shots myself, but I don't recall being provided with that type of information. And I really think people should be provided with that information to make an informed decision. And if they decide that they don't want to roll the dice or for whatever reason, if they have religious reasons, they want to maintain bodily autonomy, body purity for, for whatever reasons, I believe people should be allowed that freedom to have that option to, to opt out. And that's just one way that we can protect, you know, individual rights against um, overreach of the state and say that people's bodies, that's all that people really own. When you come into this world, all you really have is your own body. You can strip away everything, all your money and possessions and the clothes off the, off your back. And all you have left is your body. And that should belong to you and not be property of the state to do what they want with um, even to, say, fight something like a, like a pandemic. Um, it, it seems like government got all the numbers wrong regarding projections of cases, deaths, hospitalizations, and that list goes on and on and on. Uh, can you speak to, to that and what happened with the interpretation of data that, that led to that? Yeah, so here in Ontario, we had um, so, you know, some medical advisors and there was an uh, Ontario science table that uh, constantly advised the Doug Ford PC government and they had you know forecasts and projections set up, um, which like almost every single time they consistently missed on those projections where the actual case numbers came in uh, well below even some of their pessimistic or, or low range scenarios. Um, and, you know, the, the way they provided that information and the way the government relied on that information and presented it to the public really drove what I would call a fear campaign, especially in Ontario. Uh, I think the population here got quite 
used and abused by the uh, the government and their science advisors um, and were just hammered repeatedly with uh, doomsday scenarios that eventually just didn't end up playing out. Um, you know, f- and when they provided that data to the government, they, the politicians just – they abdicated any responsibility and they just passed the buck all over to science advisors who – they're not politicians, right? So they might not have a wide range scope of all the impacts that, say, some of the recommendations might have on society. Say, so like, you know, to stop the virus, we got to do lockdowns or, or whatnot, or everyone's got to be vaccinated like 100%. But they fail to consider the impacts that that would have on society in terms of mental health, social cohesion, um, e- even tensions between members of people's own families, you know, the economic health uh, of the, uh, you know, the the economy and all the damage that was done to small businesses or rules that didn't make sense that favored, say, big box stores rather than small mom and pop shops. And I know that, um, you know, Brian Lilly, he, he's a Toronto Sun um, contributor, and he's provided some really good coverage. And I'll just give you an example here. Um, from recently, the Ontario Science Table they were initially projecting that in May, you know, this month, that we would have anywhere from 2,500 to 4,000 hospitalizations from COVID. But the real number, I think, topped out at about 1,600 or 1,700. Uh, so again, below their pessimistic scenario. And, and of that number, this uh, just just shy of 1,700. Only about 700 of those were actually admitted to the hospital. F- for COVID, from impacts from COVID, and the rest of them caught COVID at the hospital. And that's something that politicians and people that are, you know, strongly in favor of our, let's say, the public health care system here in Ontario don't really want to talk about is how our hospitals were super spreaders of COVID. And, and almost half the people that they said, you know, had COVID, well, they showed up at the hospital for some other reason, you know, they broke their leg or they had some other um, reason to come to the hospital, but they caught COVID at the hospital. And our, our hospitals were unfortunately super spreaders of COVID itself. But it was, again, it was another way that they took the the data and misrepresented, say, the severity of, it, of COVID or the number of cases that were going on. Because it might have looked like, wow, all these people are getting COVID, from you know social interaction or going to businesses or whatever, but no, only half of the the people at the hospital caught COVID outside of the hospital. The other half caught it at the hospital, so they were inflating the numbers of how many people had um, COVID at the hospital. So again, just kind of misrepresenting the true size and scale and scope of the pandemic. And again, I think just to continue to drive fear into the population in order to get them to comply with. The either mandates or policies that as each day kind of went by and more evidence piled up showed that they were unnecessary and ineffective and completely ran you know, roughshed over our civil liberties and suspended a lot of um, you know, like property rights and travel rights, you know, either outside of the country or even to the point where they said to how many people you were allowed to have inside your own home. You know, I, I can understand where they might want to prevent <clears throat> large gatherings of people, say super spreader events at like arenas and things like that. But I think the, the government really stepped over the bounds when they were telling you how many 
people you can have in your own home. Uh, again, I just found that to be an affront to private property rights. So hopefully I kind of tried to um, cover it there where, yeah, they, they consistently got the numbers wrong and missed the projections, which again, if if they were in private business, you know, they wouldn't be in a job for very long if they continue to, say, interpret the data wrong and put up forecasts that they, they keep completely missing. And especially when there was so much impact from those projections and scenarios on the public consciousness, on the mental health of the population, and the, the state of you know fear and anxiety that spread throughout the entire population throughout uh, the last two years during the pandemic. So I know you're running in the current Ontario election as a libertarian. I had Mark Snow, the leader of the Ontario Libertarian Party, on episode five, so people can go back and listen to that. But let's hear a bit about your campaign, uh, what you're bringing to the table, and you know how some of what we've talked about today uh, can be corrected with uh, through the Ontario Libertarian Party. Sure thing. So maybe I'll just kind of go back a little bit to try to answer the question of like you know why why am I running? Why am I doing any of this? And uh, you know throughout the pandemic again, I thought the government stepped over the line, crossed the line numerous times, and then especially um, with the vaccine mandates when I saw that they were creating um, like a segregated society, treating people that you know chose not to take the vaccine, treating them as second-class citizens and shutting them out of public areas that, you know, they pay tax monies um, to get into some of these public places like recreation centers or even be able to go to a restaurant. Um, And then when the Freedom Convoy hit Ottawa there and I just saw, you know, the reaction, the, the divided reaction to the convoy itself, how some people were very much in support the convoy, at least of what they were trying to do and what they were protesting, which was the vaccine mandates themselves. If you listen to the people that were there, a lot of them, either they wanted their jobs back, they were worried about losing their employment, or they uh, had suffered some side effects from the vaccines and stuff, or people were just uh, there because, geez, there's this one lady where her, I think, son had... um, you know, committed suicide because he had no social life or anything left, and uh, things were just kind of kept getting worse. So it's just brutal when I saw streams and independent journalists that went down there to talk with the people and seeing that perspective, which again was almost raw and authentic, as if you were there yourself. There is no editorializing placed on top of that, and then I saw how it was portrayed by our own media and our politicians especially the um the federal government and the uh you know justin trudeau and the liberal federal liberal party how they completely demonized and misrepresented the the people there and i just was like wow our our politics are are broken our our mainstream media are is broken like they're not doing the basic job of trying to get the truth out to people and so that's what i started looking around and I knew that there was an Ontario election coming up and I'm like, all right, well, we got to do something. I, I couldn't believe that the Ontario PCs who historically I would have voted for, I couldn't believe that, you know, a conservative party or supposed conservative party was bringing in things like, you know, the vaccine mandates and whatnot and started doing more research there. And as they say, I think nowadays kind of got red pilled 
where you just your eyes are open and then you just kind of start digging through all the information from alternative and independent sources and seeing that there's a whole other world and whole other symphony of voices out there that are kind of saying the same thing and that it's not a conspiracy as they you know the mainstream media or politicians might try to present it as it's no no it's just a whole other group of people out there who have their eyes open and are doing their own research so i found after doing some research of like you know who else is out there and i saw that there was this new blue party and for the most part liked their platform but there's a couple things i just didn't want to stand behind necessarily because they're a bit more on the the religious side and and the pro-life side and i'm a bit more of a defender of pure bodily uh, autonomy and so i fell into the libertarian party where it was just like yeah i'm able to freely speak my mind which um you know i appreciate appreciate that the party uh, you know allows me to do that and come on here and do that and share my um uh, opinions and that, that's why I wanted to get out there. And, and so I'm running yeah, in the region of York Simcoe, which has the, the town of Bradford, where that's my original like hometown. I think I, I lived there from when I was two years old to seven, eight years old. So it's my original hometown. All my oldest memories are of the town and the region and going to school and playing hockey in the area. And it's um, right next to where I live. So I just wanted to, to run to be able to participate in the debates, get a different perspective out there, chat with people. I, I've done I've knocked on hundreds and hundreds of doors, which is a very interesting experience because you it's a roller coaster. You bounce from, say, I'll call it aggressive dismissal. People don't even want to hear from me. I get off the property to you meet someone who's also like completely awake and their eyes are wide open and they're 100 percent um say up to speed on what's going on um you know within the country and even globally you know with the world economic forum and say what's coming with the, the who and their global pandemic response and how that might override national sovereignty which again to me is, a, is an attack on freedoms and liberties of uh, people of individual countries so that's a little bit about why I wanted to get involved is really to help try to change the narrative a little bit, uh, get more perspectives out there and stand up for freedom, you know, individual liberty, individual rights and responsibilities, and try to get the, the, the truth out there to as many people as possible because I, I think they've done a pretty good job, unfortunately, in the, in the country of – pulling the wool over a lot of people's eyes through some of the, the mainstream media sources and the narratives that uh, you know politicians uh, like to push, especially the ones in power. Right, right, yeah. Can you just say a little bit about how the Libertarian Party would approach some of these problems, though, that we have discussed when it comes to interpreting data and creating policies based on it? Sure thing. So I guess... Going back to the that initial emergency was the original, say, set of lockdowns back in April 2020. I don't think the Libertarian Party would have done anything different back then. Of course, when emergencies come up, there are certain scenarios where you know government intervention is required, and we didn't have information or data to rely on to make informed decisions then. But since then, uh, you know, the Libertarian Party likely would have not done things the way that, um, say, the Ontario PCs did uh, with subsequent 
lockdowns. Uh, we would have tried to have more targeted approaches uh, protecting vulnerable populations after we knew that the virus was much more susceptible to older populations. So we would have put in more protections around long-term healthcare facilities and put a stop to things that we I saw where they, they had nurses traveling in between all these different long-term home care facilities and spreading uh, the virus between them. So it's like more strict controls around um, long-term home care facilities to protect um, that pop, the people in, in there, but not lock down, say, small businesses, shut them down, not allow people to shop. We, we would have tried to provide as much information and awareness as possible of the impacts of the disease, you know, the risks involved, provide, say, strong recommendations, you know, strong recommendations to maybe mask up or social distance or stay home as much as possible if you can. A lot of more voluntary actions as opposed to, you know, hard rules and mandates where People were being pulled over randomly on the side of the road and, and cops asking, you know, where are you going? Uh, I think we saw that not so much, say, here in Ontario. I think I heard a couple instances of that. Sometimes you're not sure how much is true. But I know they were doing that in other countries. Um, so those were pretty, pretty harsh lockdowns. And even Quebec had um, – uh, sorry, what's the, the word? The curfews. <laughs> they had curfews in Quebec. So – the, you know, the Libertarian Party wouldn't have done that stuff. We, we would have tried to provide as much information to the population as possible, but treat people as responsible adults and say, you know, you need to make your own informed decisions and take on your own risk level with response to the, the, the virus. And what we would have done is tried to, you know, shore up hospital resources in a way that our hospitals were not spreading COVID, you know, try to separate out maybe COVID care centers from non-COVID type hospitals so that we could still have allowed for things like surgeries to take place or a lot of cancer screenings. A lot of them got put on a backlog just trying to deal with um, with COVID cases at the hospital. And that's where libertarians would look at it and say, that, you know, we need more options, more capacity and flexibility within our healthcare system. It's very rigid where because it's completely like controlled and funded by the government, it's in their interest to keep that system almost always riding at the margin because any excess capacity is just wasted resources and the public health care system is a pure cost to the government. So it was already running like near capacity or even at capacity right when the pandemic hit. So it, it had nowhere to go. And that's where libertarians believe in more, you know, options within our healthcare system to allow, say, you know, private sector to step up and provide capacity when it's required and then roll it away when it's uh, it's not required. You know, we, we've seen private companies do similar things, like even, like, say, a company like Uber, when they're doing ride sharing, and if there's a sudden surge in demand, you know, they, they try to balance that out by getting more people on the road or they increase the um, the, the prices to, to help balance it out. It's fundamentally a, a supply and demand issue. And we had very little supply of capacity in our healthcare system and then a sudden surge in demand. And because government is tends to be you know inefficient and inflexible compared to private sector, we were not able to adapt quickly enough to the um, – to the, the the need for additional capacity and even still even like later on into the pandemic even after we knew that covid was seasonal the, the government was still ineffective in trying to provide some of that seasonal capacity 
they knew that these surges were coming, but the due to inefficiencies in the system, they're not able to rapidly make changes to the structure of the system. And so we ran into capacity issues again and again, which resulted in lockdowns, which had more damaging effects on the economy and people's mental health. So... Again, so yeah, the libertarians would be all about open information, wouldn't try to bury uh, and hide information, try to be oh, as upfront and open as possible with the population, because we believe that people are responsible, rational, intelligent adults that are able to take in information and make their own informed decisions, rather than you know using f- fear and the force of government to, to force compliance. Um, with again, with mandates that have been proven to have not been either effective or not backed up by science. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it for today, Zach. Thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. That was Zachary Tisdale. You can follow him on Twitter at Zed Tisdale. You can follow myself on Twitter at Darcy Giroux. And to make sure you never miss an episode of the Darcy Jarreau podcast, subscribe on Substack.